Nevada, land of casinos, alien sightings, and unfathomably huge deserts. A huge chunk of the landscape is arid steppe, but the Silver State actually hosts some serious biodiversity. As a transplant who only just recently learned how to say Nevada correctly, I never would have guessed that so many species live here and absolutely nowhere else in the world. And the state has big potential for renewables, solar, geothermal, and even lithium for electric vehicles. But some of those developments have serious impacts on wildlife habitat. Of course, renewable energy developments pave the way towards carbon neutrality and are part of humanity's collective solution for climate change. But there's a cost to habitat where they're installed. This episode of Biotalks is about contradictions. Climate change is one of the greatest existential threats to life on Earth, and renewable energy sources are a huge part of that solution. But not everybody agrees on how and where renewable power plants should be installed. I'm Shelby Herbert, and I'd like to welcome you to Biotalks. I'm an environmental reporter and an audio storyteller, and I got my start in public radio. You can hear my work on NPR affiliate station KUNR 88.7 and the Mountain West News Bureau. This episode is part of an ongoing series about connecting to the biodiversity in our own backyards. Patrick Donnelly directs the Great Basin Center for Biological Diversity. He's a desert activist fighting for public lands, endangered species, rural communities, and a livable climate. Today, Patrick's here to talk about the endangered species listing process, friction between renewable and conservation goals, and how he drove a 15-foot-tall bucket across the state to protest a pipeline. And, oh dear, a lot of toads. There is so much toad talk happening in this one. So let's hop right in. Hi, Patrick. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me today. What What have you been working on lately? I've, I've seen your Twitter. You were out there. Oh, my God. Beautiful pictures of the rangeland landscape every day. What's What's going on? Uh, yeah, well, you know, Nevada is full of endemic species species that live in one place and nowhere else on earth and the state is just covered in them Uh, every basin you look in nearly uh, there's going to be some fish or some rare plant or a snail or some other creature that lives in that basin and nowhere else on earth and it's one part of what makes Nevada such a unique place is all of our narrow endemics so that's really most of what I work on is visiting these species documenting their habitat and the condition uh, the conservation status of the species and then using that to inform our conservation work uh, to protect biodiversity awesome thank you so so much. And can you tell me a little bit, like, what makes Nevada stand out as far as biodiversity goes? Like, why are there so many species that only live here and absolutely nowhere else in the world? Yeah, a couple reasons. Um, the vast majority of Nevada's endemic species are aquatics um, that are associated with a spring or a creek or a lake. You know, the history of Nevada is that it was not always a desert. Um, It was once a series of inland lakes, large lakes that filled many basins. And these lake systems would have had one species of fish swimming around across the whole lake. Well, over many thousands of years, Nevada dried up. Those lakes, like Lake Lahontan, receded, and we're left with springs and creeks and rivers. So that climate history is one reason. 
The other reason that is tied to that is the extreme topography of Nevada. You know, Nevada is broken up into approximately 250 topographic basins that are enclosed from one another. And uh, so these creatures that eventually were stuck in these springs and creeks, as opposed to the big, you know, huge inland water bodies they used to live in, uh, they became isolated from one another. And so, you know, for instance, I work on this Dixie Valley toad. That was isolated. a landmark thing you guys were involved in. Tell us more about the toad. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to use it as an example of this isolation. It, it's been separated from its nearest cousins, the nearest other toads, for 600,000 years. And so it's been totally isolated out there, becoming its own little species. So the Dixie Valley toad is a really good example of Nevada's endemism. It's, it's had 600,000 years to become highly attuned to its habitat. Its habitat was created by hot springs springs that flow there at Dixie Meadows and create this uh, verdant marshland habitat that the toad lives in. And uh, they have become uniquely adapted to that hot spring system such that they need it to survive. Uh, the Great Basin is, of course, a cold desert, and uh, the hot spring allows the water to stay warm enough so they can survive the winter. Well, and so, you know, there's a threat to the Dixie Valley toad, this proposed geothermal power plant yeah. that could dry up those springs. Absolutely. What What is kind of moving the needle on geothermal here in Nevada? Like, could you talk a little bit about um, what happened earlier this year around April with that landmark ESA decision in the context of that power plant? Yeah. So recognizing the threat to the Dixie Valley toad from the proposed geothermal power plant, we submitted an Endangered Species Act petition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to protect the Dixie Valley toad under the Endangered Species Act in 2017. Meanwhile, for the ensuing several years, uh, the Bureau of Land Management continued to process the environmental compliance work and the permit for the power plant. And so in late 2021, uh, let's see, it was the day before Thanksgiving, um, that BLM approved uh, the Dixie Meadows Geothermal Project. And uh, we made an Im immediate appeal to the Fish and Wildlife Service to emergency list the Dixie Valley toad as a result of the threat from that power plant approval. And the Fish and Wildlife Service agreed. And so in April of this year, they issued an emergency Endangered Species Act listing for the Dixie Valley toad, um, which was the first emergency listing in 11 years and only the second in 20 years. And they uh, gave the toad emergency protective status. And now there is a court battle ensuing on what that means. You know, we say that means they have to stop construction immediately. They say they can continue on their merry way. So we're currently in court in the District of Nevada fighting about what an Endangered Species Act listing does for the toad. Absolutely. Um, kind of on that note, what exactly about geothermal developments threatens these hot spring ecosystems? Like how, how are they interacting with that environment or what have you seen in the past? Yeah, geothermal energy is a pretty simple idea. You you pump up very hot water. Uh, you use it to heat up a, a fluid. They frequently use pentane or other mediums that transfer heat. So you use it to heat up that fluid, which creates steam that spins a turbine, creating energy. So it's sort of very simple. And so you pump that hot water up, use it, and then they re-inject it. Now they're re-injecting colder water than they pumped, right? They pump it, they extract heat from it, and then they re-inject cold water. So over time, they can affect the temperature of the geothermal reservoir they're exploiting. 
Uh, additionally, they're pumping huge amounts of water. We're talking tens of billions yeah. of gallons a year. So it's, uh, it's uh, the Dixie Meadows project would pump 45,000 acre feet a year, which is a vast amount of water. Uh, now it's recirculating it. It's pushing it back in the ground, reinjecting it. But the act of that pumping and recirculation and the reinjection, which involves huge amounts of pressure and force within the aquifer, can create new fractures. It can close up old fractures, create pressure and temperature gradients. It basically alters the subsurface hydrology such that springs sited near geothermal power plants almost always dry up or change dramatically. And there's data from all around the world showing that this happens when you build a geothermal power plant. That's the concern. Are there any specific case studies that come to mind or like any examples from the past where geothermal developments have like harmed a specific species or ecosystem or there's examples from around the globe, you know, from Iceland and New Zealand and, and so forth. But there's many examples in Nevada, too. You know, close to home in Reno, um, there is the Steamboat Geothermal Power Plant. That's the one south of town when you're driving to Carson City that people are probably pretty familiar with. And that contributed to Steamboat Hot Springs drying up. And there's a rare plant there, the Steamboat Buckwheat, uh, which is now listed under the Endangered Species Act as protected uh, because the hot springs it relied on for life dried up. Additionally, just up the road from Dixie Meadows, uh, there's a space called Jersey Valley Hot Spring, and the same company, Ormat, built a geothermal power plant next to, geother uh, next to Jersey Valley Hot Spring, and the hot spring dried up within a couple of years. So this, this happens. Yikes, that is, that's bleak. I mean, this is something that, you know, at least in the circles I run in, people view geothermal as, you know, a, a close to perfect renewable energy source. And I mean, you know, all of our actions have consequences, but like, has your organization like identified any ways these geothermal companies can like ameliorate the damage they do? Or, you know, is your position just like they're all bad? Um, there's no mitigating the damage when you dry up a spring. You know, you dry up the spring, that's it. It's game over. You've destroyed that ecosystem. So your only option is to site geothermal away from springs. Um, and there are places this can be done, places where you can site geothermal away from sensitive groundwater dependent ecosystems. But it does limit the places. You know, right now there's this idea you can just build geothermal anywhere and there's never any problems. And that's just not the case. You know, we say there needs to be a planning effort done by the Bureau of Land Management in Nevada, the Governor's Office on Energy, to identify low conflict places to build geothermal. Where can we build geothermal without driving species extinct? That's a fundamental question that no one has an answer to right now. And so we're stuck, you know, doing what I call playing whack-a-mole with bad projects. And, and that's not acceptable. So a while ago, uh, oh my gosh, like months ago this summer, we spoke about another geothermal development that's threatening a particular species. And I kind of wanted to check in with you about that. What's the uh, the vibe with the Sandhill Skipper right now? This um, this butterfly in is it is it Nye County? Even? No, it's hum Humboldt County. Humboldt, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Far northern Nevada, yeah, near the Oregon border. Uh, the bleached sandhill skipper is a very rare species of butterfly that lives at a place called Baltazar Hot Springs. Same company, of course, Ormat proposed a geothermal power plant there at Baltazar, and um, they uh, 
did not evaluate the impacts on the bleach sand hill skipper in the environmental permitting for that geothermal power project. We unfortunately found out about it too late, so we were unable to fight the power plant, but we were able to do an Endangered Species Act petition for the butterfly. You know, our concern is that the habitat the butterfly needs is an alkali salt marsh fed by the spring, and if the spring dries up, the salt marsh goes away and the butterfly goes away, so it is threatened with extinction. So we submitted an Endangered Species Act petition to protect the bleached sandhill skipper. Um, I have no updates since uh, we spoke earlier in the summer. You know, these Endangered Species Act petitions take time to go through the process, and the 90-day finding usually takes one year. Uh, so I'm not holding my breath for any quick action on the, you know, on that. I will say I was out there a few weeks ago, and there was no sign of any activity from ORMAT, so it doesn't appear they're moving very quickly, even though it is approved and they could break ground any day they want. That's really interesting to me. You said something about, like, you know, things being on your radar. Like, how's your organization able to, like, identify these hotspots where these conflicts are happening usually? Is it is there a tip line? or You know, there's a variety of ways we find out. I have a lot of antenna out there, you know. I subscribe to the Federal Register, so every morning at 6 a.m., I, I am aware of any major federal action happening across the United States uh, for the environment and the land management agencies, so that's one way. You know, I have 57 Google Alerts. You know, <laughs> I, I catch a lot of stuff in my 57 Google Alerts. You know, and then we do have concerned citizens who email us, you know, most notably the uh, different endemic species that has nothing to do with geothermal, but Teams buckwheat, which mm -hmm. is a famous little wildflower that is uh, in the way of a lithium mine. We found out about that because of a BLM whistleblower who, who actually got suspended from the agency after he told us about Teams buckwheat. And that type of thing has happened with numerous species. Dixie Valley Toad we were just talking about. We had a professor there at UNR contact us because he had uh, been working on that species and he was concerned about its fate. And then sometimes it's dumb luck. You know, I was just going through an old list of imperiled species in Nevada, and I happened to see that the bleached sandhill skipper lived at Baltazar's spring. And I said, hey, wait, wasn't there a Baltazar geothermal project? Oh. And, and so it was totally <laughs> random that we even found out about the bleached sandhill skipper. Yeah, I was almost kind of hoping that there was like some like one-to-one -one correlation. Like, okay, there's a hot spring here. There's probably a lot of speciation. Yeah, oh. Oh gosh, in this area, but that's also like right for, you know, these developments. But I, I guess it's a little bit more complicated than that. I no, mean, but you're, you've got the basic premise that most hot springs in the, in the Great Basin have some form of endemic life. Has anyone ever like raised concern about a particular species or area that you were just like, the cost benefit analysis just doesn't pan out? Like, you know, it, it might be better to use this space for um, energy purposes than... Uh, you know, I, I think issue selection, what I choose to spend my day on is one of the chief challenges at my job. You know, I like to say I'm in an endangered species emergency room and I'm the triage nurse, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we can spend our limited resources. We definitely choose fights we think we can win. We definitely choose fights that have maximum impact on biodiversity. And yeah, some stuff's going to get lost, you know. I mean, I have a tracking list of like 40 species in this state that we could file an Endangered Species Act petition for tomorrow. But I just, you know, I don't have a lot of time. And we're filing about three to four per year, which, you know, is pretty good. I mean, it's a lot. We're a big pain in the ass to the Fish and Wildlife Service. I'll say that. <laughs> But, you know, it doesn't keep pace with the scale of the extinction crisis in Nevada. So, you know, that's a very difficult day-to-day -day decision process for me, given how dire, you know, the situation faced by Nevada's biodiversity is. What's the 
been the best fight for you? What has been the most satisfying? Um... Uh, you know, Team's Buckwheat, the rare little wildflower standing in the way of a lithium mine, has certainly been the biggest fight I've ever taken on in my career. It, it's been profiled in media outlets around the world, you know, in Australia and London and Europe and all over. And, uh, you know, it has really helped catalyze a discussion about the environmental impacts of lithium mining and electric vehicles. And so I'm very proud to be part of that. You know, it's not over yet. We still might lose Teams Buckwheat, you know, but I, I think that little buckwheat has had a substantial impact and outsized impact on the dialogue, on the cultural zeitgeist about lithium mining. And so that's really important and meaningful, I think, to me, because ultimately, you know, we work on all these rare little species that live in one place. And like I said, there's a million of them and they're all in danger. So how do we pick the ones to work on? Well, we pick the ones that can have the most impact. We pick the ones that have a broader societal impact, a legal impact, and can really make a difference for biodiversity preservation around the world and not just in that one place. What it, What is its societal role? Well, I mean, it is a dark example of complete annihilation. You know, this species would be completely wiped off the earth. And I believe there is a visceral human reaction to extinction. I think humans don't like extinction. If there is a universal moral code, if such a thing exists, I think not driving species extinct is part of the universal moral code. And so people have reacted very strongly to this idea that a mine would wipe a species off the face of the earth. And that's why it's drawn such attention. You know, and meanwhile, there's a lot of people out there who would say, oh, who's going to put a wildflower in front of a lithium mine or a toad in front of a geothermal power plant? <laughs> and so it's really catalyzed discussions about is the clean energy revolution clean if it perpetuates the extinction crisis? Absolutely. How do you confront the other side of that, though? I mean, we still have this horrific global problem with climate change and um, fossil fuels. What would you say to someone who's really skeptical about prioritizing, you know, saving these species? I mean, if if the only place on earth to produce geothermal energy was at Dixie Meadows, and we had to sacrifice the Dixie Valley toad for that, then maybe there'd be a discussion. But it's not. There's actually many, many, many places we can produce renewable energy that don't drive species extinct. You know, and meanwhile, biodiversity, the toad, the buckwheat, all of it is what gives us clean air to breathe and clean water to drink and what puts food on our plates. Without biodiversity, we have nothing. We go extinct. And so the toad's fate is our fate. The buckwheat and us are intertwined. And if we let all these species get wiped out in exchange for development of any kind, whether it's clean energy or dirty energy, well, we are really jeopardizing our own existence on Earth. I think we talked about that in our last interview. And I was Probably. Like, oh, it's, my, it's my tagline. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you mentioned you guys do about like three to four species a year for the listing process. Where are you at now in October 2022? Boy, I'd have to look. I think it's three this year. That's awesome. I think it's three. In Nevada or like? Uh, one, uh, I have to look, we recently did a Utah petition as well, uh, but, uh, I think we have three in Nevada this year. Awesome. And then I have like probably three in the hopper right now that we're working on. And then, you know, like I said, my list is 30 or 40 species. We could petition as soon as we have time to write it. For sure. <laughs> For sure. If you had a button in front of you and you could get one of those 40 like listed right off the bat, what would that be? Oh, easy, easy. The <laughs> The Amargosa toad. Ooh, tell me about that. The Amargosa toad lives only in Beatty, Nevada. Beatty is this cute little gateway town to Death Valley National Park uh, between Las Vegas and Reno. 
and the toad lives just there along the Amargosa River. And I also live along the Amargosa River, south of there. And so the toad's fate is my fate. And there is a whole bunch of open pit gold mining proposed all around Beatty. Big open pits. They're planning on going beneath the water table and dewatering. And that could dry up the river. That could wipe out the toad. And I'm very, very concerned about the toad's fate. And um, we're hoping to get that petition going as soon as possible. We've talked about a couple toads in this interview. What is their role in that ecosystem? Like if we lose the toads, what else do we lose in that environment? Yeah, I think you want to look at their predator-prey relationships. You know, they're going to eat invertebrates. They're going to eat flies and bugs. They're going to eat uh, small fishes. And so they're, they're basically keeping the populations in balance um, they also probably provide nutrient cycling and uh, aeration of uh, decomposing uh, marsh grasses. And moreover, I think, you know, oh, we just want to protect a toad. If the toads are there, that means you have a relatively intact, relatively pristine groundwater dependent ecosystem. And so if the toad is there, that's an indication it's something really special and needs to be protected. And so if you, again, if you protect the toad, then you protect the town's drinking water in Beatty. You protect the toad, you protect my drinking water down the river. There's much bigger impact to these listings than just putting them on a list. It could potentially save people, you know, and, and I like to refer back to longtime Nevada activist and Pyramid Paiute tribal member and elder Norm Harry, who recently passed away. He used to say, what's good for the fish is good for the people. And, you know, that's so true with the Amargosa toad and with so many of these aquatic species that we're working on. Right, right. That said, you know, I will say that I work with scientists on almost every single petition I do. So basically every petition I do, I'm consulting with an expert in the field. They're providing edits and feedback. And in some cases, they co-petition with us. So we do work with scientists on these petitions. That's awesome. Uh, if you're able to share, like, what has been your best direct action moment? I'm thinking along the lines of like monkey wrenching, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, anyone who's going to work on that type of stuff is not going to talk about it on a podcast. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, uh, I saw you in this amazing eagle costume. Yeah, I would say the best The best one was, um, you know, a big fight we had for many years was uh, fighting the Las Vegas pipeline, a proposed pipeline 300 miles to eastern Nevada to suck down billions of gallons of groundwater and pump it to Las Vegas. And we fought that for many, many years. And uh, there was a moment in the 2019 Nevada legislative session when there was a bill that looked like it was going to pass, which would have enabled the pipeline. It would have overturned the law that we had been suing over. And so uh, in a last ditch effort to stop it, I drove out to Baker, Nevada. Baker's where the pipeline would have been. And there, the residents, they had built this 15 foot tall galvanized steel bucket. And they had a sign on it that said no water grab or whatever. And it was the symbol of the fight against the pipeline. And so I hooked it up to my truck and I drove all the way across the state with a 15 foot tall bucket. And I brought it to the front steps of the legislature and we put a sign on it that said, no water grab, Las Vegas rate players will be bled dry. And we had a big press conference in front of the bucket and it was on the front page of all the newspapers the next morning. And the bill was dead by noon the next day. Fantastic. That was awesome, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining me. Are there any parting thoughts? Or... Yeah, yeah. If I could give one yeah. more. Climate change is an existential threat to humans and wildlife. We don't address climate change. We have nothing. So is the biodiversity crisis. So is the extinction crisis. You know, the Center for Biological Diversity strongly supports renewable energy done the right way. You know, we support complete decarbonization of our grid, uh, including geothermal energy. 
and lithium production, but it's got to be done the right way so that we're not harming biodiversity and threatening all life on earth. And so, you know, we're trying to seek solutions where that can happen in harmony with biodiversity. Hey folks, thanks for joining me today. I've included a link to my coverage of Patrick's Bleach Sandhill Skipper Butterfly Petition for NPR affiliate KUNR 88.7 in this episode's description. You can learn more about the Endangered Species Act petitions in your region by checking out the Center for Biological Diversity at biologicaldiversity.org. I'm Shelby Herbert, and this is your cheerful reminder that you inhabit a dying planet. Don't stop talking about it. Home means Nevada. Home means the hills. Home means the sage and the pine. Out by the truckie, silver.